0: As we get started today uh, and get ready to go into God's Word, uh, I, just, I, I just can't get that song off of my mind, and could, could I just hear you sing that one more time? Would you just sing together in declaration
1: and worship of our God? God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. This time, uh, yeah, let's sing it with those words,
0: you're so good, not just he's so good. Let's sing it to him directly. And if you know alto or tenor or make up your own part, whatever you... (laughs) just lift
1: it up to him. God, you're so good. God, you're so good. God, you're so me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was lost, but
0: Well, voici la question, est-ce que vous êtes prêts? Are you ready to study God's Word today? Okay. Oh, God has something for us today. I am so excited to get into His Word. We are in this series where it's a little more theologically deep Then, uh, you know, we try to cover a lot of different subjects, and this particular topic, though, that we're looking at in Scripture in this series is more deeply theological, and uh, theology is the idea of what we believe about God, what we believe about the Bible, and how that shapes how we view ourselves and how we view the world. And we mentioned last week that one problem that maybe some of us have experienced as well, but one of the, one of the arguments that we hear is that it's so hard to believe this book because it is filled with contradictions. That people will say, well, you know, one thing it says this and then somewhere else it says something else and, and how can you believe this book. And and we talked about last week how much of that comes from a lack of understanding of how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. And we looked at how when you understand the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, when you look at the Testaments, you see the differences. And a lot of times those arguments come or those conflicts come from a lack of understanding of the Old Testament and the New Testament. But we also, we looked at A particular conflict that is found within the New Testament itself, which is really a central issue of Christianity. This question that we're looking at is huge because it comes down to the matter of how a person is saved. How are you forgiven by God? How are you made right by God? How do you go to heaven? And so we started last week in James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead and so James says you can talk all you want about being a Christian but if it is not accompanied if it is not accompanied by a a life that that is is seeking to please God by good works and good actions and good deeds that start flowing out of our lives James says if 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 that how you live matters, that the choices you make in life matter because, he says, we are not saved by faith alone, that our deeds, our good works are actually an important part of it. Which sounds good until you read what Paul says. And <laughs> you remember, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verse eight and nine, where Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And in other places as well, Paul explicitly says, you are saved by faith alone. But James says, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Yikes! And so, We we looked at this problem and saw how really this has has caused a lot of confusion over the 2,000 years of, of Christianity since Jesus went back to heaven. But we realized that there were three things. We looked at two. Today we're going to look at a third. Three things that are very helpful in reconciling what appears to be a difference between Paul and James. And the first thing that we have to understand is One of the reasons for confusion is because we tend to take Paul's words out of context. That what people will often do with Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 is we'll read verse 8 and 9, but stop and cut Paul off in his thought before he says the complete thought into verse 10. Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And that's where a lot of times we stop. Paul continues, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so that's the first reason that we sometimes get confused about faith and works, sometimes If we're not careful, we can take Paul out of context. The second reason we get confused about Paul is because he talks a lot about the law. And when we read that, we're like, what is he talking about when he is so focused on how we are no longer under the law? One of the great examples that we looked at last week was from Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 to 25, where Paul says, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified or forgiven by faith now that faith has come we are no longer under the supervision of the law and this is just one of the places that he talks about it. This is a main theme, though, all throughout Paul's writing. He talks about the old law, which is in reference to the Old Testament. And the law was about good works, about observing the Sabbath and don't eat pork, don't do this, don't do that. And to be forgiven for your sin, you have to go to the temple and make animal sacrifice. But Jesus, Paul makes it abundantly clear, came to fulfill all of those requirements from the old law. And so Jesus made the way for our salvation and for our forgiveness to be made right with God. But here's what many times Christians fail to understand. The old law is fulfilled by Jesus, yes, But he did not just put it aside, he fulfilled it and then brought a new law to the forefront. And so what is the new law? And we looked at this last week. Do you remember? The new law is love. And we looked at what Jesus said in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 22 verse 36, someone came to Jesus and asked him, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law, all the law And the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus said the law has been fulfilled, and now we are to live it out within the context of the law of love, love God and love others. Around here, we say it like this, God's love in us to the world, which is just a reflection of the teaching of Jesus. And so I'd really encourage you, if you were not here last Sunday, to go back and you can watch that message online as we talked about the new law of love. But here's the third reason that sometimes we get confused about Paul and James, and this is new. We did not talk about this last week, okay? The difference between what Paul says, all you need is faith, and what James says when he says you also need to do good, good works, starts to make sense when you realize that they are talking about different points in your spiritual journey. This is huge. You know how sometimes confusion can happen because you're saying the same words, but sometimes you mean something different? And so here's what, here's what that means. Paul, the point of the journey that Paul is talking about in your spiritual life Paul is talking about the root of your salvation. James is talking about the fruit of your salvation. Let me explain that. When Paul talks about the root of your salvation, he is talking about how you are justified and made right before a holy and perfect God, and nothing that is unclean can come into his presence it's like imagine, you know, somebody's got dirty muddy shoes and they come walking on your beautiful clean white carpet. You're like, "No, you got to get cleaned up before you come into my house." And so Canadians, the way that we exercise, that is say you got to take your shoes off, right? Don't bring your mud in on my clean carpet. And so Paul is saying That we are made perfect, that we are cleaned up and made righteous in the eyes of a holy God, not by our good works, but by the sacrifice of Jesus who died on the cross so that we can be forgiven for our sins and begin this relationship with God. That is the, the root of our salvation. Then James starts talking about the fruit of your salvation. That once you accept Christ and you get rooted in your faith, as your roots go down into the word of God and growing in your relationship with God through the power of the Holy Spirit, that what happens is that that then as you get rooted in your faith, then good works and positive changes and fruit starts to come out of your life. So Paul is talking about the requirement for your salvation james is talking about the results of your salvation does that make sense okay now just to, to make absolutely sure watch this video that i think is really really helpful
2: faith works salvation man talk about your polarizing topics everyone has an opinion on them can we work our way to heaven does it just simply take faith? And what is an authentic faith? Well, let's investigate the arithmetic behind these important questions and see how the truth really adds up. Some people believe that works equals salvation. Simply put, this is man's effort to work his way up to God and become acceptable in his sight. This is the view of religion, that lots of good works equals salvation. However, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. Hmm, sounds like something is wrong with our equation. So, let's scratch works and replace it with faith. Surely that's all we need to make our equation correct. Well, we need to tread carefully here. Faith is ultimately what makes us acceptable to God. And we know without faith, it is impossible to please God. But this equation is incomplete. James 2, verse 17 says that faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. So works must be factored into the equation. One popular view of the salvation formula is faith plus works equals salvation. People think that belief in Christ is important, but that salvation is still dependent upon doing enough good with their life. They rightly acknowledge the expectation that works are involved, but they confuse why they're there. It may be subtle, but it's wrong. Why? Well, look at this quick math lesson. We can all agree that two plus three equals five. Thus, since this equation is true, it also means that three equals five minus two. A true equation holds up regardless of how you move the pieces around. We call them fact families. So let's return to our formula. If faith plus works equals salvation is true, then the formula of faith equals salvation minus works must also be true. And Professor James has already reminded us that this kind of faith just doesn't add up. Let's try this one more time. We are saved by faith. But James does add something to the equation by challenging us with what our faith should look like. It's not that works create our salvation, rather it's that works should accompany our salvation. That's an authentic faith. Growing in Christ-likeness in such a way that our lives bear the fruit of good works. And yes, I know what you're thinking. If this fact family is true, then faith minus works equals salvation must also be true. So if you have no works, are you saved? Let's just say while we can celebrate God's amazing grace, the expectation of God's word is that we would see the fruit of your real faith. So while the math adds up, it should bother you that your life does not. The fact is we are saved by faith alone, but the faith which saves is never alone. Still not sure about all of this? Well, you do the math.
0: Isn't that good? That the, that the faith which saves is never alone that the result that comes out are positive changes in our lives. And ne- next week, we're going to look at a whole new passage of Scripture to add to the equation, all new stuff. Uh, in, uh, and so we'll, we'll get to that next week. But today, in the time we have left, we are just going to drill right down into James chapter 2 and break this apart. And what we're going to find is something that uh, one of the, a, a great hero of the faith uh, talks about Warren Wearsby. Uh, Warren Wearsby says that there are three elements of a real and authentic faith. This is really simple, really quickly. We'll go through this, and then we'll get into James chapter 2, and that'll that'll help us understand it. But first, he says that that a real and authentic faith, first of all, has an intellectual affirmation of the good news. This is in your mind, that you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your forgiveness. That it it then has, the second point, is a heart response to the truth. This is in our emotions, that we love God with our heart, an emotional response to the truth. And then here's the key, number three, it is manifested in a surrendered life, your will. Now, your will to survive, like we have those different ways that we use the word will, Uh, And so, uh, but the kind of will that this is talking about is where Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And so the three elements of a real and authentic faith, an affirmation of the good news in your mind, that you believe Jesus is who he says he is and what he did, a heart response to the truth, this involves our emotions And that it is manifested in a surrendered life, in our will, the choices that we make. Now, when you understand these three components of a real and authentic faith, all of a sudden, when you go back and read through James chapter 2, stuff just starts coming out at you and making sense. That James is talking about Three different kinds of people in these various stages of faith. And so if you look at James chapter 2, verse 17, for example, he says, In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So remember, believe in your mind, emotions in your heart, surrender your will. What James is talking about here, number one, is a dead faith and he says a dead faith number one is mind only dead faith is mind only James says it is possible, it is possible to hear about Jesus, to know about Jesus, maybe even be raised in the church and surrounded by Jesus' people, but that there are some who call themselves Christians who, while they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross and rose again, but it is nothing more than an intellectual affirmation in the mind, and it is never penetrated into the heart and has never resulted in a changed life. And then then as we continue in James' writing, he says in verse 19, so you believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder in fear, right? Shudder in fear. And so this is a, number two, demon-like faith. Mind and emotions. Now, James is not calling these people demons, please don't misunderstand, but he's he's comparing and saying that, that it is possible to believe intellectually that there is a God, and demons even have an emotional response. It says, James says, they shudder in fear, they are afraid of God, but the problem is they do not submit to God, they do not surrender to Him, they do not obey God. And can we be honest, there are also many people in churches today who, like demons, are perhaps afraid of God even though they believe in Him or even worship God emotionally. Oh, passionate worship experiences and it's all ushy-gushy and we read the Bible and we cry. And, it's and yet go out and it never manifests in a change in lifestyle. In a change in attitude and the surrendering of the will in obedience. And so, what we really want to get to is a dynamic. Faith And a dynamic faith is engaging the mind, the emotions, and the will. Where we say all three, I have decided with my mind who Jesus is. I love Jesus with my whole heart as I surrender to him. And I will do whatever he asks me to do. I will go wherever he asks me to go. I will live however he asks me to live. And so... You know, you've heard the video the last two Sundays uh, where in our announcements it's mentioned uh, that not this week, but next week there has to be a vote because uh, of the way that the Wesleyan Church works out, that Tracy and I ended up here in Moncton. It was exactly two years ago in March of 2017, and an initial call for uh, a pastor here is for two years so that you don't get stuck with somebody you don't like, then you get to vote again after two years to make sure you haven't changed your mind. And so, by the way, I'm baking chocolate chip cookies this week for anybody <laughs> who would like them. No, no. And, uh, and so, but what's, what's interesting about that is Tracy and I have been talking about this a lot in our home this March, how it was exactly two years ago in March of 2017, 2017, that we flew here together, and it was Tracy's first time ever here in this building, ever here meeting you, and exactly two years ago, this Sunday, uh, the membership voted and asked me to come and be your pastor, and that was a huge, let me tell you, on, on our side of the scale, on our side of the equation, that was a huge and scary move for us. At the time, we were living comfortably in Alabama. We were in a growing church in a beautiful city with a beautiful home. You know how when people retire? People retire and they do not move to Nineveh. (laughs) People retire and move south. We were already there. And so I rode my motorcycle to work every all January and February. No winter, it was glorious. And I'm, I'm Canadian, I'm from here in New Brunswick, but I married Tracy, uh, who is born and raised in Virginia in the Blue Ridge Mountains, an American. We got married back in 1995, and we lived our entire married lives in the States. Both of our children were born in the States. None of them had ever lived on this side of the border in the land of perpetual winter. Uh, It's like Narnia. Uh, No, no. Uh, Actually, today, though, it's like we had in November, we had early winter, and now in March, we're having early spring. Can we get an amen? Woo! It's beautiful. Just wait. We might have a blizzard on Easter. Uh, It was a huge and scary move for our whole family. And here's one of the things that I've, I've heard people say before. I've heard people say things like this. You know, I would never, ever move when my children are in high school because it would be unfair to them. And I get that. But listen, you do not put parameters on God. Our son was in grade 11 when we moved here. That is hard, friends. And to take on a big, scary job like this in the public spotlight, which is not always fun, following the great Dr. L.D. Buckingham, the Billy Graham of Canada. (laughs) That is incredible. (laughs) that is incredibly intimidating and scary. And you say, oh, poor Joel. Suck it up, buttercup. You're a blessed man. I know, I know, I know. It's true. God has blessed us so graciously, and we are so glad to be here. We love it here. We love you. But listen, here's the point. When he is making the plan for what's best for your life, He does not always take your logical considerations into account. That many times, God asks us to do things that we would not choose to do, things that we are scared to do. And the call of God is overwhelming because Jesus never said that following Him would be easy. In Mark chapter 10, verse 17, it says that Jesus was setting out on a journey, and a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, Jesus, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Wow, this guy thought a lot of himself. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Jesus felt some, some translations say something like felt compassion for him. I think Jesus looked at him and said, what an idiot. <laughs> you, you think you've kept all the commands of God from your youth, but Jesus did not say that. Jesus is a lot more gracious than I am sometimes. <laughs> Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, okay, so you say that you've done all these good works. One thing you lack Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples after this guy walks away, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. This was a radical thing for Jesus to say back then. Because in that culture, many believed that a rich, easy, comfortable life was a sign of God's blessing. Many believed that if you were rich, it was because you were a good person and God blessed you, and that if you were poor, it was probably because you were not so good of a person. But Jesus said the exact opposite of that. Jesus said that in fact, being rich and comfortable can actually be dangerous because we start to think that we do not have to trust God. And so Jesus says to this rich young man, here's what it takes to come and follow me. And the young man said, Jesus, I'll do anything for you, but I will not give my money. That's too much. Some people, it's their, their cultural identity. I, 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 can, I am so concerned about what the world thinks of me and how people make fun of Christians and 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 the world says that I can have all these things. The world says that I can live this way. And so, Jesus, I'll do anything to follow you, but I won't do that. I won't give up this area of my life. Some people say, Jesus, I would do anything to follow you, but I won't move my family. As, As long as it's right here where we are, you can ask me to do anything else, Lord, but I won't do that. And can I just say, I believe that God has brought me here to New Brunswick to help start a spiritual revolution, but here's the deal, I am not the only one. Listen, all around this room, and maybe even some people on a regular basis, I get messages from people around the world who send messages and say we watch online every Sunday from different parts of the world and say we feel like God is drawing us to Moncton and to Moncton Westland. And that we're in the immigration process and we, we plan to be there soon. We're, we're, I, I promise, we're going to get there. Listen, uh, let me complete my thought here. And so two years ago, just like me, living in a comfortable life, a long, long way away in the United States, there are many here today who two years ago, you were living in Korea Two years ago, you were living in Brazil. Two years ago, you were living in Nigeria. Some of you were in far off, distant, exotic lands like Ontario and Saskatchewan. (laughs) And you heard the voice of God say, I want you in Moncton. And you picked up your family. And you left your comfortable life and you came to this place and we thank you because we believe that God is drawing Christians from around the world to Moncton because there is a move of God's spirit that is taking place. Listen, that miracles and and healings and life transformation and salvation as we step out in faith and boldly follow the leading of God to do what he asks us to do here in our city. Listen, just right now, just maintenant, regarde la personne à côté de toi. Look at the person beside you. I want you to look at the person behind you. Look at the person in front of you. You're like, Joel, this is awkward. Don't worry, they're doing it too. Look all around you. I want you to look at faces. Look up in the balcony. Look down on the floor. Look at the people all around you. And I want you to realize something, you have no idea what some of those people have been through. You have no idea what some of the people in this room around you have given up to follow Jesus. And sometimes we get this idea that that to follow Jesus means, you know, if I just bow my head and say a little prayer, then I get to go to heaven. Listen, if that's what you think, you need to read this book again. Listen, when when the rich young man came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, you've got to give everything the world says, oh, no, 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 no. We'll just accept you the way that you are. And Jesus says, I accept you the way that you are, but I want to change you and make you even better. Listen, listen, it's, it's, it's not just pray a little prayer and get to go to heaven. It's pray a prayer and surrender your life. That is what faith and works looks like. You see, we are not saved by good works. We are saved to do good works, to become followers of Jesus who say, I will go wherever you ask me to go. I will do whatever you ask me to do for the sake of Jesus.